Timothy's hands trembled as he read. He almost cradled the letter as though his gentleness in handling the parchment would be somehow conveyed to its author, now chained in a cold Roman prison. The letter he had received came from the Apostle Paul. It would be his last letter. For years, Timothy had pushed the thought of losing Paul out of his mind. Paul had been like a father to him. Paul had been a friend. Paul had been a mentor to this young pastor. How could Timothy now minister without Paul's reassuring words, without Paul's reassuring prayers, without Paul's confidence in his work? But now Timothy knew Paul's death was imminent. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, Paul wrote, and the time has come for my departure. Timothy read the closing lines of the letter through tears, but then he stopped and abruptly he pushed them away. How could he wallow in his own grief when his friend Paul, his mentor Paul, was facing death so boldly? He could almost hear the voice of Paul through the words on the page. Timothy, keep your head in all situations, endure hardships, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now Timothy began to read this letter one more time. He read slowly. He read very deliberately. His eyes bored through every sentence. He looked at every single word. In the closing moments of Paul's life, would God give him a flash of insight? Would God give him some kind of understanding that he could now pass on to Timothy? After all, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He wrote to the Corinthians that he had been swept up into heaven. What special insight might God have now for Paul that he could give to Timothy in his last days? What would he reveal to him? As Timothy read this epistle, this letter to him, his heart pounding, the truth, the key hit him with piercing clarity. He saw more clearly than ever that what Paul had given his life to, and for which Timothy too would spend himself, the message of Paul's final letter revealed no new truth, no hidden knowledge, just one truth that he had given his life to spread, the good news, the news of the cross. And now the letter which Timothy originally read as if it was Paul's obituary letter to him, now he saw it as a joy-filled, bold restatement of all that Paul had lived for and all that he soon would die for. Of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. I am not ashamed because I know whom of which I have believed." The words seemed to shout out to Timothy from the page, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Timothy could almost see Paul's fiery gaze blazing into his own. He could almost feel Paul's gnarled fingers gripping him by the forearms. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You don't need a new truth, he heard his old friend say. Guard the one truth. Keep the one message. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. 
Years later, another apostolic figure by the name of John Stott, a renowned Anglican leader and Christian thinker, wrote a book called Guard the Gospel. In the early 1970s, he wrote this, all around us we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it, and in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. Years later, another author by the name of George Orwell, you may know his name from books like Animal Farm in 1984, noted that, quote, sometimes the first duty of intelligent men is the restatement of the obvious, end quote. Sometimes the most obvious truths are the ones we need to be reminded of the most, isn't it? Obvious truths, after all, because of the nature of being so obvious, can easily be assumed, and when something is easily assumed, it's also very easily lost. That's in part what this series is about. We want to restate the obvious. We want to restate the obvious so we don't assume it. We don't want to assume it so we don't lose it. So that's one of the reasons we are doing a series on the gospel, nearly nine weeks on the gospel message, so we do not assume the message. So it's not just so obvious we don't think about it anymore but that we actually restate it, remind ourselves about it, preach it to ourselves, and cherish it. A second reason we're doing a series in the gospel is that because we live in a world surrounded by other gospels. And we want to be clear that while we profess to one, we are not, not co-opted by another. So, what, what do I mean by that? We live in a, a world of gospels. The word gospel uh, literally means good news. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, means good news. It's the proclamation. But the word gospel also has come to mean a whole host of realities about life that, that communicate the way we live and navigate the world we live in, many of them which might be religious. Most of them aren't, but they certainly all have religious undertones, believe it or not. Let me give you some examples. Uh, for those of you who are Facebook friends of mine, uh, after I finished my PhD, I wanted to, to get back in shape, so I kind of jumped into this um, intense exercise routine kind of thing. And, um, you know, I realized after my first week of being there, you know, early in the morning, I realized that this is kind of like church. Uh, not because simply the instructor would say to us every day, remember, read your Bible, read your Bible. I thought, oh, cool, read your Bible. But they weren't referring to this Bible. They were referring to the instruction manual that, that laid out what we were supposed to be doing. But towards the end of that week, I realized this is a lot like church. This is a gospel message here. You see, the sin of laziness and a sedentary lifestyle is being repented of by vigorous daily workout routines that we were gathering routinely with other like-minded CrossFit converts, and we were having fellowship and community with one another. We were enjoying uplifting music, and every hour go through our liturgy, and when we didn't show up, people would hold us accountable. What's that? That's church. And I realized that's where we are. We are like a church here, and we have a gospel message. Now, none of them actually said that, but as I'm navigating through this situation and I am enjoying it, I realize there's a gospel message coming through here. Physical fitness and being trim is your salvation. Laziness and sedentary lives are a sin. Overcome it. Overcome it through our CrossFit program. It's a gospel narrative. Now, maybe you haven't been taken in by the CrossFit gospel, and again, I enjoy it. I love it, but I see it for what it is. They're promoting a gospel message and a salvation that's different from the one I'm holding to. Maybe that's not your cup of tea, so you're not the CrossFit gospel type. Maybe you're the consumer gospel type. If you're feeling bad or insecure or life is just too hard, you need to comfort yourself by seeking refuge in our sacred secular sanctuaries called the mall 
right? Where, where we offer up our, our plastic offerings, and in return, we get goods and services that fill us up and make us happy and give us the comfort we need to get through a life that's just really hard. And when we need to do it again, we repeat the process over and over. It doesn't have to be the holy sanctuary of the mall. It could be a Bass Pro Shop. It could be sporting events. The point simply is this. We have gospel narratives that we're living our lives by. They're everywhere. And if we're not careful, those narratives exert more of an influence over our lives than the actual gospel itself does. Those are just two examples of dozens of gospel narratives. Whether they're religious, irreligious, or a-religious, every single person you know is living their lives by some storyline, right? And that storyline follows the same arc. There is creation, there's chaos, there's a correction, and then there's a consummation. There's why is everything here? What's the situation? Why did it all go wrong? What's going to solve it? Here's the change, and here's how we live in light of it, and how it buttons all up. All you got to do is drop in the various elements to fill in the pieces, but that's a gospel narrative. And if we're not careful, if we're not aware that there are these other gospel narratives, those begin to exert an influence in your life stronger than even the biblical one that you profess with your lips. And so we want to do a series to make clear that we are understanding the gospel, where it originates from, how it's revealed, who secures it, who it applies to, how it's applied, where it's embodied, and how do we live in light of that so that we are understanding and more and more with every week, perhaps growing in appreciation for the actual gospel. Now, a little, a little caveat here. This is not a series on how to share the gospel, right? So we're not going to talk about here's the four ways you talk to somebody and bring them to the gospel. We could do that, but that's not what this series is about. What we're going to be spending our time is looking under the hood and seeing how the infrastructure of the gospel. There are thousands of ways to share the gospel message with your friends and family and coworkers, and a lot of jumping on points or on-ramps. And so what we want to do is understand the infrastructure so that at any one of these on-ramps, you can jump from this point to the gospel, this point to the gospel throughout the nine weeks as we look at that. I want to do far more than give you four simple ways to share the gospel. We want to talk about what the gospel is at its macro level as it intersects with our lives. So to do that, to start this morning, we're going to ask two important questions. Here they are. Uh, Where does the gospel begin, and why does it matter? Where does the gospel begin, and why does it matter? So let's start with the first question. Where does the gospel begin? If you were talking with someone this morning or sometime this week, someone who knew nothing about the gospel, and you wanted to share with them about Jesus and the gospel, what he did, here's my question. Where would you begin? No, that's a rhetorical question, right? Okay, because this congregation is getting used to me asking questions, expecting answers, so don't take the wind out of my sails. That's a rhetorical question. If you were telling somebody about the gospel, where would you begin? Now, you might think, well, I would begin where the gospels begin, Mark chapter 1, where Jesus just bursts on the scene and proclaims, uh, the, the, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So I'm going to start where the gospel starts. You know, wait a minute, but, but that's just one gospel. You know, Matthew and Luke, they don't start there. They don't start with Jesus' baptism and proclamation. They, they start at Christmas. So, at Matthew and Luke, they start in chapter 1 with Jesus' birth. So, that's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start where Jesus comes into the world. So, you start where Jesus gets baptized and starts proclaiming. I'm going to start when Jesus comes into the world. That's better, I think. You think about it a little bit more. You go, wait a minute, though. Because in John's gospel... In chapter 3 and chapter 10, Jesus says, the Father who sent me into this world. 
Wait, so Jesus' words imply that his story doesn't even, that transcends even starting in this world. He implies strongly he has an origin far before his proclamation, far before his even birth. It doesn't even start in this world at all. The Father had sent him into the world. It seems like Jesus is taking the story all the way back, back to the beginning, which is, by the way, exactly how John starts his gospel, doesn't he? In John chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So according to John's gospel, God's saving work in Jesus Christ really begins at the the very beginning, the very eternity of God Himself. The gospel then begins in the eternal purposes of God. The gospel begins in the eternal purposes of God. The gospel, my friends, doesn't begin in the gospels. Yes, the gospels uh, encapsulate and express the full manifestation and outworking of that plan, but the gospel doesn't begin in the gospels. The gospel begins in the character and counsel of God Himself. So let's unpack this from a different direction. If you were to be sharing your Christian story with this individual that you were sharing the gospel with, and you wanted to share your story of Christianity, how you became a Christian, where would you begin? Chances are, you'd begin where most of us would begin. You would share about the moment you were converted, where you became a Christian. But then you might think about it and go, yeah, but you know what? There were a lot of people in my life and a lot of events that as I look back now, I see God orchestrating to bring me to a point of understanding the gospel, to bring me to salvation. Really, since I was born, it seems like God was at work in my life. For some of you, you were in a Christian household that by a positive example pointed you to the gospel. For others of you, you grew up in a non-Christian household by way of negative example perhaps pointed you to the gospel, and most of us are in some variation between those two. Say, well, so it seems like all my life God has been at work to get me to the point of understanding the gospel. Well, you look at Paul the Apostle, where in places he goes to Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, to talk about his conversion. But then in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, he writes this, but when he who had set me apart, notice that phrase, before I was born, and who called me by His grace. And by the way, it wasn't just Paul who said that. Jeremiah the prophet said the same thing. God had called me before I was even born. Now, we think at Paul, as Paul reflected on God's grace in his life, he didn't just take the story to the point of his conversion, like he does in the book of Acts, nor does he take it to his birth, like he does in Galatians 1. Paul, like the gospel writers, talking about the gospel, takes his conversion all the way back to the beginning. Notice in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, what he writes to the Ephesian church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here's a phrase. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us 
for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. But here's what gets even more amazing. Paul doesn't just say this to the Ephesian churches. To his young protege, Timothy, he says the same thing. In 2 Timothy 1.9, he writes, "'Who saved us,' speaking of God, "'and called us to a holy calling, "'not because of our works, "'but because of His own purpose and grace, "'which He gave us in Christ Jesus,' there's that phrase again, "'before the ages began.'" So, Paul doesn't just say this to the Ephesian churches. He doesn't just say this to Timothy, his protege. He even says it to this young convert, Titus, who's he's discipling in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Even before the first sin spoiled the good world that God had made, he knew about the gospel. He knew what he was going to do, that he was going to reclaim a wicked and rebellious creation that fights against him. He was going to send his son to die before there was anything, as Kyle prayed, known as matter. Let me show you from the NIV translation, Revelation 13:8. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, listen, here's the phrase, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Wait, wait, wait. The lamb who was slain, that happened in, you know, A.D. 32, but, but John the Apostle saying the lamb had been slain from the creation of the world. In other words, God knew he had destined his son to die. The gospel was set in motion before even there was sin in the world. Now, friends, admittedly, we are bumping up to some mysteries here, big time. Some of you are just going, what are you talking about, right? I get that. But here's the central point I merely want to make in bringing this to light. The gospel, which has impacted most of our lives here, does not begin with us. Obvious, that's so obvious, why do you have to state it? Because it's so obvious we may not think about it. The gospel does not begin with us. It didn't begin with you. It didn't begin with your parents. It didn't begin with your grandparents. It didn't begin with your favorite Bible, uh, your pastor or Bible teacher or favorite denomination. It originates in God Himself. We weren't the clever few who figured it out. We weren't the morally righteous through our own good works and religiosity, merited God's favor, and He said, oh, you're so good, I got to have you come on in. It wasn't that way. The gospel that saves us, that came to us, as we've seen, originates in God Himself. Not even in the gospel narratives. It precedes the gospel narratives. So, that's the first question. Where does the gospel begin? Where does the gospel begin? It begins in the counsel and character of God. Second question, why is that important? Okay, great. So, the gospel begins with God. Why is that important? Two reasons. One's practical, one's theological. Practically speaking, the reason this is important is that it means you cannot individualize the gospel so much that it becomes this purely private spiritual experience between you and God. That's really important because we live in a culture that, that you hear it all the time, right? Religion, keep it private. It's just it's this personal thing. And sometimes we buy the party line and we think, okay, the gospel, it's just, just personal, man. It's just me and God and nobody else. Mm-mm. 
That, that, that's, that, is not what's, that, that is not true. You cannot customize the gospel to fit your own personal inclinations. That's also important in a culture, in a world, where everything is kind of up to our own personal preferences, right? Everything's got a personal preference brain. Or you can configure it to your liking. You can make things the way you want them to be. That's not quite the way it is with the gospel. In other words, the gospel has an objective reality to it. The gospel has a shape of its own. The gospel is an it. It is a thing that is there. The gospel drew you into its orbit. You did not draw the gospel into your orbit. You don't get to conform it to your life the way you want to. You conform your life to the gospel. The gospel is more like mom's cooking than it is Burger King, okay? It is you get what you get and you got to deal with it, not you can have it your way. That's not how that is, right? So when you go home, mom says, this is what we're having. It's meatloaf okay, I'm going to eat my meatloaf. It's not you want your mustard, your pickles, or whatever. That's not how it is. The gospel has an objective reality to it. We don't get to customize it and personalize it and privatize it so it's just me and God and no one else. The gospel drew us into its orbit for a purpose. We didn't draw it into our orbit for our own personal preferences. That's really important because there is a, a mode of Christianity that it's just me and Jesus at Starbucks, or me and Jesus at the beach, or me and Jesus, and that's it. As if there's no objective reality to God's plan that applies to us. So that's the practical implication of why it's important that the understanding that the gospel starts with God. The theological application uh, has four points under that, so let me give them to you real quick. Number one, it reveals that God is a pursuing God. Isn't that great? The gospel that saves us started with Him. From Genesis to Revelation, from the first century to the 21st century and every century before that, God is pursuing His people via the message of the gospel. And with every, uh, uh, um, I don't word revelation, but with every uh, revelation of the gospel, notice that the implications and the application get greater and more significant. So the very first time we hear the gospel, it's actually in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. It's just them too. And it's this faint hint that somehow God's going to make everything that has been ruined okay. And then it broadens out to Noah and his family, eight or nine people. And that God is promising things that, that were made in his image. And, and the application and implications get bigger. And then it goes to Abraham and his 70 or 80 members of his family. And then it goes to the whole nation of Israel. And then it expands to the church. And the implications and applications are global and universal. God is always pursuing and his intent, well, I'm, I'm dipping into the second point, but God is always a pursuing God. So the question we have to ask ourselves are, is, are you pursuing people with the gospel the way God pursued you with the gospel? Are there people in your life that you are pursuing with the gospel, and if not, why not? Because God was relentless, we might even say God was merciless in pursuing you with the gospel. This is why we relentlessly share with our family members, even though it might be hard or awkward or difficult, or with our coworkers or classmates we see every day, or, or with the, the Mormon or the Muslim or the, the, the Buddhist that we see around our neighborhood or abroad through missions. This is why we believe in missions as a local church, because God is a pursuing God. This is why we don't want to be a church for ourselves, but a church that looks outside. This is why it's not about a club for us, but an outpost for the world. 
Because that's what we're called to do. And we remember this by remembering the gospel, that the gospel originates in God who's a pursuing God. Second, that the fact that the gospel uh, originates in God reveals that He is a purposeful God. In other words, there is an intentionality to what God is doing. Friends, our lives are purposeful because the source of life is purposeful Himself. Right? The current culture, the narrative is that history is a never-ending cycle of repeated events that just kind of goes on and on, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. But that's not the biblical narrative. There is a beginning, there is an end, and it ends where it all began with God Himself. There is a point, a purpose to what we do, to how we live. It is not an, an overstatement. Friends, it's not an overstatement to say that the purpose of every Christian life is to be vigilant and passionate about the spread of the gospel. Now, that, that doesn't mean you quit your job at the insurance company or at the university or, you know, at the cafe or whatever and become a missionary or a theologian or a pastor. That is not the message. It is to say that you, you look at your entire life's choices, your family, your vocation, your education, your vacations, and you're choosing in light of the 10,000 implications of the gospel narrative, right? And let me make that real practical. One, one way you do that is simply by asking this question. And I've been talking with a young man in our church who's made some decisions recently. He wasn't asking the question this way, but by the way he was thinking, this is what he was asking. And the question is this, what choice can I make that will bring God maximum glory? Friends, how often do you ask yourself that question? Whenever you're thinking about what university I should attend, what career path I should choose, what relationship should I continue to pursue, how often are you asking the question, which choice I make will bring God maximum glory? Because that's the question we're supposed to be asking at every decision point. How often do we ask that question, right? We're usually, be, we're pragmatists, right? Where it's like, well, what's the pros and cons? What's beneficial? What's better? What's convenient? What will be better for my family? Those kinds of things. And those are okay and understandable to a point. But if we're entirely looking at it from that perspective, we'll see life through a human perspective and not through a gospel-driven perspective, right? Some of the craziest thing God asks us to do doesn't do take into account any of those factors, but one what will bring Him most glory? And that's the way we ought to be living our lives with that kind of purpose. What choice I make here brings God most glory? And my convenience, my safety, my family, my luxury, my lifestyle takes a second seat to that question. And I know what we're thinking here. That means that you're thinking, if that means an, I'm an athlete, then God's going to break my legs and, and, and make me do something I don't want to do, or, or you know, we're going to make me, make me go to Africa to be a missionary. That's not what that means. That simply means that we're putting God's perspective of the world first and foremost. Third, so the gospel originating in God reveals that He's a pursuing God, that He's a purposeful God. It also reveals that He's a personal God a personal God. Friends, the reason we make everything of the gospel is because of the one thing the gospel does. And what's the one thing that the gospel does? It brings us together with God. Guys, friends, listen. 
Yes, the gospel promises forgiveness of sins. The gospel promises heaven and all those things. But the thing that the gospel does better than anything is it puts us in a position where we can cherish and have a relationship with God himself. If we forget that greatest good of the gospel, we've missed the gospel entirely and actually made it an idol. Get that. Here's a thought experiment. If you could have heaven and all your family and friends have passed away would be been there, and no sickness and no disease and no heartache would ever exist, and all the beauties and all the tastes of this world were there in abundance, and it didn't have Jesus, though, would you still want it? If you could have all those beauties of heaven, but there was no Jesus, do you still want it? Friends, the gospel should be cherished and celebrated because it allows us to cherish and supremely know God himself. If we forget that one thing, then we've misunderstood the gospel. All we've been focusing on are the benefits of the gospel, but not the greatest good of the gospel, and that is to be with God. That's God's desire from the beginning, to be with us. Is that our desire, to be with Him? The fact that the gospel originates from God reveals to us He's a personal God. He wants to be known by you. He wants to know you. He wants to be in relationship. Do we with Him? Or have we misunderstood the benefits for cherishing Him supremely as the benefit of the gospel, right? Fourth and final thing. Um, So, the gospel reveals that it originates in God, that He is a pursuing God. He's a purposeful God. He's a personal God. And finally, He is a preeminent God. This personal God is pursuing His people with purpose because He is the preeminent one and wants His glory maximized. Think about it. God is pursuing all of us. God is pursuing the world so that there is a people of people who pursue, give Him praise, honor, and glory because He's the preeminent one. Now, I was talking to a family member last week, and, and, and she was just kind of wrestling through that, and she said, I know this is so wrong, but it sounds like, it sounds like God's a bit narcissistic. <laughs> and I went, I know, because if any one of us were to say that, that's exactly what we would feel, but God's not a narcissist. That's sinful. God's just being honest, right? Think about this, friends. Narcissism, the reason we hate narcissism, the reason we don't like it is because it's, it's such an over-excessive self-interest, totally disproportionate to the individual who's kind of pulling things to himself or herself. And it's wrong, and we know that immediately. But God cannot possibly be narcissistic. These total source of beauty, grandeur, justice, compassion, mercy, love, gloriousness, holiness, perfection, You could never praise, adore, or give honor worthy of that. And God is pursuing the people so that His glory and honor is made known because when that happens, that is what's good for us and we flourish. Let me prove it to you this way. Have you ever seen a perfect sunset or perfect snowfall? You ever climbed a 14,000-foot mountain and looked below and and seen clouds and other snow-capped peaks below you? You ever seen the Grand Canyon? You ever been to one of the seven wonders of the world and you're just blown away? And, And there's a sense of serenity. 
if they're on a bunch of tourists taking pictures or people doing selfies or obnoxious things like that, there is a satisfaction that is so appropriate. You never think that, oh, a mountain's so narcissistic. You know, the sunset, so, so self-absorbed. I'm going to ignore it. No, because it's appropriate. You see it and you go, Friends, that sense of satisfaction and peace is your soul whispering to you that you were made for things that you cannot hardly even imagine in this world. And when you come in touch, however briefly you are coming into contact with the reality of what God is saying, if you're blown away because you look down on other mountaintops or you saw a sunset, can you begin to even comprehend what it's going to look like to, to be like to look at the source of beauty and perfection and goodness and righteousness and holiness and love? God is the preeminent one. And when creation recognizes that, that is far from narcissism. That's just the way the reality is supposed to work. And friends, we see this all the time in our world, right? It's, it's almost sickening when you turn on TV, the, the accolades we give celebrities or sports stars and all this stuff that we thrive on doing that. And yet when it comes to God, we struggle with that. No, but in orders of magnitude, He's the preeminent one and we're satisfied when we recognize that about Him. All right, so I, I, have, I had six more points from, the, from 1 Corinthians 15 on the gospel, um, but I have four minutes, so we're not going to do that now. What we'll do is maybe next time we do through the series, we'll start with 1 Corinthians 15. The point I'm trying to make, though, is that just talking about the origins of the gospel cannot be contained, just as God Himself and understanding Him cannot be contained into kind of a four-step process. Friends, you will be able to share the gospel with your friends, not when you have a system, a system down, but when it grips your heart and you're blowing away in your mind of what the gospel actually is. You may sound incoherent, you may seem a bit foolish to your friends, but what they will be gripped was, this is the real deal. This is reality. And friends, that's the kind of world we need to reach. We need to be those kinds of people gripped with the reality of the gospel. I feel another sermon kind of going, but I'm just going to land it here. Next week, we're going to talk about exactly how God reveals this gospel through His Word, uh, and it's just going to be wonderful. I hope you're here to do that. I also want to encourage you again, remember coming to Adventure Week every night this week. It'll be a wonderful fellowship and time with the body of Christ. And then finally, hey, check in on Facebook because I really want to get you guys a copy of this book by John Piper, God is the Gospel. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.